Hi, and welcome to Figure Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on author Katie Simpson-Smith. Hi, I am Katie Simpson-Smith, a novelist who lives here in New Orleans, but who is originally from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, And I'm very excited to have been invited onto WRBH this afternoon to talk a little bit about my own writing and some of the authors that have inspired me. And so for this particular session, I organized my own writing and other authors' writings around the theme of death. So if you're all squeamish about the human body, this this is your warning right now. I am currently working on a novel project that is set in Rome and covers about 2,000 years of history and that really focuses on ideas of the human body and death and sacrifice. It starts in the very early Roman Empire with the story of a young Christian martyr. And with her story, I was very interested in how a young girl as young as you know 12 years old would feel compelled to lay down her own life for a belief system that was relatively new. Christianity was sort of just spreading across the empire and she took to it so strongly to its messages of, you know, lifting up the weak and giving giving the weak a voice that she as a young child, especially a girl child whose family did not listen to her, saw as this rallying cry and that she would lay down her life for. Uh, so that was sort of the starting seed of the novel project. And then as the as the book moves through time, I, I look at other characters who deal with death in, in interesting ways as well. So for this segment, I want to share with you a few of my favorite writers who have written about death in, in interesting and compelling and unexpected ways. So not just a murder mystery, but sort of looking more carefully and intimately at what happens to the human body after it dies, but also the human soul and where it goes. So the first uh, piece I want to read to you is from a book by Jim Crace, who is a British author, uh, and it's from his novel called Being Dead, which is very unusually structured in that he starts off with the murder of his protagonist uh, in chapter one. This middle-aged couple um, are robbed and killed on the beach. And the rest of the novel uh, both goes back in time to explore their relationship and how they got to this to this fateful day on the beach. Uh, but it also simultaneously moves forward and shows you in extreme detail uh, the decomposition of their bodies and the many different kinds of animals that turn their corpses into a habitat, which I think is kind of delightful. Um, I, I know I'm not in the majority of that in that opinion. Uh, but I'm hoping to convince you all today. So this is from Being Dead by Jim Crace. The bodies were discovered straight away. A beetle first. Claudatus Maximi, a male. Then the raiding parties arrived, drawn by the summons of fresh wounds and the smell of urine. Swag flies and crabs, which normally would have to make do with rat dung and the carcasses of fish for their carrion. Then a gull. No one except the newspapers could say that, quote, there was only death amongst the dunes that summer's afternoon. This single beetle had no appetite for blood. He was not a scavenger. His preference, his specialty, was for the roots of lissome grass, 
the only vegetation on the dunes, apart from the sea thorn and the sapless tinder trees, that can make a good green living out of sand. He had been feeding in an exposed tangle of roots when Celise fell back. Her sudden shadow might have been a hawk. But Claudatus Maximi was fortunate. The woman's body only upended him and pressed him into the grass. Unlike humans, beetles have armor plating on their backs. They're not soft fruit. They're designed to withstand blows. The beetle flipped off his back and hurried towards the sunlight still visible beyond the warm and wool-roofed cavern, which had enclosed him so suddenly. His legs caught in the folds of Celise's black jacket. Wool was harder work than sand or grass. It snagged on him, a heavy web but he persevered against the cloth and against the unexpected darkness. Dune beetles choose to feed in light. Felice was an eclipse for him. Claudatus did not appreciate the woman's company. He fled her weight and shadow, despite the ancient dangers of the open air, the skin-eyed hawks, the gull, the squadron ants, the parasites, the playful boys with jam jars. He didn't carry with him any of that burden which makes the human animal so cumbersome, the certainty that death was fast approaching and could arrive at any time with its plunging snout blindly to break the surface of the pool. It's only those who glimpse the awful, endless corridor of death, too gross to contemplate, that need to lose themselves in love or art. His species had no poets. He had not spent, like us, his lifetime concocting systems to deny mortality. Nor had he passed his days in melancholic fear of death, the hollow, and the avalanche. Nor was he burdened with the compensating marvels of human mortal life. He had no schemes, no memories, no guilt or aspirations, no appetite for love, and no delusions. The woman had destroyed his light. He wanted to escape her and to feed. That was his long-term plan and his hereafter. So I love that excerpt, um, and it gets much more sort of disgusting and detailed as the book goes on. But this idea that we're, we're all caught up in a single ecosystem and that death, while it's the end of us, is also the beginning of so many other things is a very hopeful thought for me um, and one that prevents death from being, being such a downer. The next excerpt that I would like to read uh, is from a book called The Book of Duels by Michael Garriga who is more of a local author. He uh, was born and raised in Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, although he now teaches in the Midwest, I believe. But this book is a series of flash fictions about famous and non-famous duels in history. Uh, And he devotes about one page to um, each duelist and one page to the witness of the duel. Um, And these range from uh, Cain and Abel to Don Quixote fighting with the windmill Um, And the piece I want to read to you today is from um, a duel that is actually a bullfight. And this section is from the perspective of the bull. Sueño de Fuego, age 5, 584 kilos. Scratch and snort and huff and puff and put my hoof print in this earth. This my place and this my time. And here I've come to fight. Here I find no cow nor steer to my delight. So stomp and spit and huff and thrust and put my rut in this beast here. Six legs it has, three arms, two heads. Has it come to muscle me, to make a morsel out of me? 
but truth be told, I want it more. So I drive my horn straight through its torso, and even as it barbs my hide, I lift it from the earth, shift my hump and dump it rump-wise and tear its insides out. I stomp and bellow, grumble and dig and suffer as it dies. Jabbed and hooked four men today and drove them each and all away. They barbed and barbed, but I drove them each away. Now comes their god, skin of shiny lights, who cries and spins and shouts and hides behind a bright red cape that goes a swishy sway, and it ripples like heifer scruff when I mount and huff and puff and grunt my calf make rut. I rush and rush, but it twirls, and I spin and crash and fall again, until the red is me running from my snoring snout and coming in strings from my open mouth. Still the cape goes wiggle-waggle more. I rake my hoof and miss my mark and grunt and puff and thrust my horn twice more into earth, holes each the size of this god's waist. About me roars the horde who wave their small white rags and shriek for ears and tail and more. Toro, he cries, and Toro again, and my wind blows out the holes in me, and so too goes my blood. I cannot lift my head. I am bone-rattled and beaten, defeated in battle, and now my nape lies smooth, my tense muscles unknot. I'll soon be leaving this body behind. Rise over the moon to the great pasture beyond, in time to join my harem of grazing long-lashed gals who will swoon and low when they gaze at me and raise their swishy tails. Toro, he calls again, and though my mouth is slick with blood, I will not show my tongue nor shake the stick stuck near my spine, no, let them whistle till their lips go numb, but I will bristle at dirt no more, nor snort, nor snore, nor warn, nor bluff, but wait till time is mine and true and ripe with proof, and then, horns low, I will charge. So I love this piece because it shows us death from the perspective of something we're not used to being terribly concerned about or empathetic with, which is an animal. Um, and it's suffering. Um, and I think Michael Garriga gets the voice of this bull so, does it, he does it so well that um, you're just pulled into its experience of violence, but also its dreams of, um, you know, a heaven that is stocked with, with cows for him to mate with. Um, so I think that's a, a particularly well-drawn scene of death. I now would like to read a poem from Derek Harrell, who is a poet um, working right now at Ole Miss in Mississippi. He uh, runs the MFA program there. And he wrote a book called Ropes, uh, which is um, focusing on some of the great boxing matches in the early 20th century, particularly uh, the career of Jack Johnson. And this poem, uh, which is called Sam McVeigh Writes Galveston Giant Letter from Grave, uh, is about an early boxer named Sam McVeigh. And the Galveston giant referred to in the title is a nickname for Jack Johnson. Mount Olivet Cemetery, New York, December 1921. Way I went, way down deep, thought I was sleep, well awake, but sleep, like when a banshee get on top, make love to you and you can't move a knuckle. Least now they can find me. Jack, I'm going to be down deep, rooted low, a hum in the mud, all muddy with dignity. I love that image of a hum in the mud. 
This next excerpt is from a favorite Italian writer of mine uh, whose name is Viola de Grado. Uh, and this book of hers is called Hollow Heart, and it is narrated almost entirely from the perspective of um, a woman who has just committed suicide. So she's seeing the world after her own death. On July 23rd at 3.29 in the afternoon, my death set out from Catania. Its epicenter was my thin, supine body, my 300 grams of human heart, my small breasts, my puffy eyes, my brain clubbed senseless, the wrist of my right arm draped over the edge of the tub, the other wrist submerged in a grim mojito of mint bubble bath and blood. On July 23rd, in the full heat of summer, down the dusty steps of my apartment building, oozing downward insidiously like oily boiling veins of asphalt, my death propagated from Via Crispi 21 through all the neighboring streets to the cathedral with its pigeons and short-clad tourists to the Amanano River, which reeks of carrion and then vanished underground. From my central nervous system to the streets of the city center, from cold to hot, a perfect breakdown from which there is no return. Down into the black heart of the lava stone, from the Roman aqueduct to the dirt paths of the Parco Gioiani, overgrown with weeds and littered with empty beer cans, to the scalding steps of the church of the Santissima Trinita, to the dingy gray faces of Saints Peter and Paul outside the church of Sant'Agata al Borgo. From there it shot off to the narrow sidewalks of the Scogliera, a scream in the depths of the sea, a puff of air in the seagull's lungs. Amidst the noise of the beaches, the sweat, the wafting clouds of deodorant and suntan lotion. Geometric under the spray of the shower, brutal down in the drains, down among the cigarette butts, inside used condoms, swirling down, martyred, into the sewers, down into the darkness, tangled up in hair and the tails of passing rats. After four hours, my body temperature plunged, especially that of my internal organs. First the brain, then the liver, then the epidermis, then the Ionian sea. It hardened like a fist. At that point, my death once again took wing. It flew all the way up to Mount Etna, darting among the pines of lingua glossa, furious as an enamorment, secret as a virus. From the hollowed-out branches of my vascular system to the withered branches of the birch trees, from my long, dark hair to the crowns of the maple trees, made unkempt by the muggy heat, from the dark expanses of my collapsed nerves to the expanses of sun-baked fields, off to the west, flickering for an instant, as if being defibrillated and then falling still forever. Lightning quick, wet, tangled up in the roots of every blue-green holmoke, in the Bosco Cuso, inside every unripe acorn, all the way down to the parched soil and then up and away again. Up to an elevation of 3,000 feet, black with the oak trees, tiny with the ants. Up and still farther up, all the way to the top, a fire running the wrong way round from sky to crater, the incubation lasted two days, and then, at dawn on July 25th, the volcano's southeast crater suddenly erupted. Lava sloughed down the eastern slope until 7 o'clock that evening. A fountain of savage blood, no longer hemmed in by veins. At that point, a powerful wind sprang up and drove the ash toward the Ionian Sea. Looking up at the sky, the people of Catania were astonished by a hard black rain. Something was broken. Something was now beyond repair. They all turned their burning eyes back to earth. 
no one recognized me. They all took shelter in their homes, surrounded by their knickknacks and their little loves. The ash is gone. The sun has set. The lava has hardened down the length of the long arms of dark earth surrounding the volcano. For two hours, the sky remained gray, grainy, soaked in red like a used gauze dressing. A light breeze began to blow like a solace, and my death, solitary and profound, left the island. So I love how she turns her own death into this much larger uh, environmental catastrophe that all the islanders on Sicily are forced to witness, that she wants to be, even after her own suicide, part of something much larger. Um, I want to read a very little bit now from my own book to sort of give you a sense of uh, the ways in which I am interested in death. Um, And this is from a section set in the ninth century, uh, and the main character is a monk who has been put in charge of uh, watching the putridarium. And a putridarium is a very strange kind of crypt where uh, deceased monks' bodies are set up on little toilets and their um, fluids sort of drip out of them over an extended period of time. So they're eventually mummified. Uh, And one monk was always uh, sent down to watch them to contemplate mortality and report back on what he saw to the other monks. So this is the character of Felix. Behind the stairs to the crypt, Felix had placed a three-legged stool on which he could sit when the abbot was chastising monks above, and he was settled here now, listening to the muted maledictions while he looked fondly on Brother Bernardo, so recently his friend. Bernardo sat politely in his nook, hands folded in his lap, head drifting slightly to one side. If it drooped any more tomorrow, Felix would prop it up. When he peeled back Bernardo's eyelid a few days ago and stared deeply within, his sister once told him heaven's reflection could be glimpsed there. He had accidentally squeezed it to get a better view, and the pupil had changed shape, become some sort of devilish triangle. He quickly closed the lid and crossed himself. God wouldn't let Brother Bernardo wander around paradise with one goat eye. Faith was a cure for curiosity. So Felix didn't wonder how Bernardo would find the other monks up there, or if distance even existed, or whether friendship meant anything, where there was no such thing as non-friendship, likewise happiness. He was caught in a little limbo of his own, between the mile of promise of heaven and the bustle of men, the ones upstairs, doddering around in their brown wool robes, and the ones busying through streets, the city, the misty fields of home. Not misty, there had been a terrible drought the summer he left, the summer he was asked to leave, 40 years ago, and the grasses had crackled like fishbones. Now his hours were spent with these remnants. Lonely was too grand a word. Felix's stomach made a petulant noise. His friend was beginning to smell like Monday stew. Soon his face would be as dried and hollowed as Brother Giuseppe to his left, and his chest would collapse like Brother Timothy to his right, But for now, Bernardo was the most robust of all the corpses perched on their thrones in this poor stone church on the hill where Remus once set up his challenge to Romulus and lost. After dinner, the brotherhood divided into cleaners and singers, and Felix, as he often did, chose the former task of finding relief in busy hands. Stack the bowls, wipe the tables, sweep the floor, scrub the pots, toss the dirty water on the cabbages, 
chuck the oily sand in the outhouse, gather the carrot tops and wilted chard and gristle in a basket, and visit them upon the happy chickens, who bump their hips in a scramble to the door, their heads leading their legs by a seemingly dangerous margin. And all this to the singing brother's tune, a quiet chant if the weather was wet and cold, or a full-throated foot-stomper, their more restful chore never begrudged, for Felix found the greater pleasure in listening. And anyway, his own warble wasn't pleasing, as his mother was careful to tell him on his first attempt to join the chorus of voices in the country church. He must have been six. Oh, my love, she had said, and put a hand over his mouth. Let's allow the angels to have their turn. It was too dark to see the broom now, so Felix affixed a new candle in his holder, a small brass cup with a ring for his thumb, and took it to the outhouse to sit for half an hour with his begrudging bowels. When he crossed back to the church, Brother Benedictus was kneeling closer to the altar than was customary, and when Felix waved, he shuffled back. No harm in wanting to touch God. And yet, neither Benedictus nor the newest novitiate, nor most of the brothers, had any interest in traveling to the subterranean reaches of this holy space to watch God at his most visible. The last keeper of the putridarium had died two years before, and Father Peter scrambled to find someone willing to tend the corpse of the tender. Felix's singing was poor, his manuscript illumination haphazard, his understanding of the chemistry involved in baking perilously inexact, but he was not squeamish, and he believed, as his mother had told him, that the body was a manifestation of God's love for us. So the father had blessed Felix, some said punished him, with the crypt key. On his first visit below, he had vomited. They looked like a seated council of ghouls, mouths hanging, flesh distended, waiting for someone to speak. His tasks were to defend the bodies from desecration in case of heathen raid, and to mark carefully the progress of the body's purgatorial decay so he might converse with monks who had fears about mortality. In practice, the father discouraged him from loose corpse talk. He said it made the brothers ill. Now his predecessor was third in line, a tumbly haystack of bones and a stained old habit, and Bernardo was his new treasure. As he let his supper digest, Felix peered again with wonder at the dead man's eyes. Where did they sink? And on what timeline? Did the fluid leach out first and the filmy sack collapse like a popped balloon? Or was there some solid core, an olive pit, that the eye would eventually shrink to? Would blue irises turn red as veins dissolved and blood ran wild? There was no running wild, just a steady seeping, an occasional audible drip as Bernardo's fluids left the openings gently made in his bottom and passed through the hole in his stone seat, his toilet throne, and fell to the packed dirt below, sunless and cold. His former friend had been what a kind man would call plumpish, and his arms had funneled that weight like pastry cream into the bags of his hands, leaving a crease at the wrist. He'd been tenderly packed, Bernardo, his limbs as clearly jointed as a doll's. But the fat was draining. Perhaps Felix shouldn't keep lifting aside the habit to observe the changes in the decomposing form, but he had to know when the ankles needed a well-aimed lancing. Exploding feet were frowned upon. Bernardo, lucky man, to be blind to his mortification. Felix would be the keeper of his honor and would never cringe, only chuckle. For there is also great humor in our embarrassments, 
humor and thinking, we are anything more than a collection of fluids, of gases that find ways to noisily escape, of bile and pus and goo. I want to end today's uh, session on death uh, with one of my favorite poems by the great John Keats, who was writing in the early 19th century uh, and who has his own connections to Rome that I ended up exploring a little bit in the novel. And this is a poem of his about his own anxiety about an impending death that would take him far too young. And this poem of his is called, When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be. Uh, and I think it will ring true to many writers out there. When I have fears that I may cease to be, before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books in charactery hold like rich garners the full-ripened grain, when I behold upon the night's starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance. And when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love, then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone and think, to love and fame, to nothingness do you think. Thank you all so much for listening to my thoughts and rambles about death and the human body. And I hope that after hearing these various authors approach to our own impending doom, that you have slightly more optimism about what comes after beauty that is inherent in our own demise. Thank you so much. And thank you to WRBH for having me. That was novelist Katie Simpson-Smith, whose latest book was Free Men. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure Speech, a new community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Reminder that you can find all of our older programs on WRBH's SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. Thanks for listening.